Welcome to the Life on Repeat podcast with me, Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and dementia coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Hello, everyone. I'm really happy to invite our guest today, Adria Thompson. She is a speech language pathologist and a dementia educator. I have to admit to everyone, Adria is my most favorite person to follow on social media. You can find her on TikTok and Facebook and Instagram. Her handle is called Be Like Care. And you will not, I'm telling you, you won't be disappointed if you follow her. I love your stuff, Adria. (laughs) Thank Um, you. Yeah, I share it with my team. In fact, we often go back when we're working with clients and we might have a challenge or something that comes up. I'm always looking through your thread to see if you have some advice that you had posted about. So welcome. Welcome to our show today. Thank you for your kind words and for you've always just been so encouraging to me. So I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am thrilled and I'll, I'll tell our listeners that I've already talk to you about coming back. (laughs) We haven't even had one episode yet, but I'm already (laughs) inviting you back. Today, we are going to talk a little bit about speech language pathology and how the speech therapist might be able to help your family members that have dementia and the types of areas that these therapists can be helpful with. So we're going to really hone in today on specifically that topic And just know, Adria is a wealth of knowledge, especially when it comes to areas like problem solving and understanding how to approach people from their perspective and coming up with creative tools. And so this is going to be fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'll challenge myself to not go over too long on on our conversation. Maybe you can just start out give a little background on what a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, and a speech therapist do, and then even more specifically, how they might help folks who have memory impairment or dementia. Yeah, so physical, occupational, and speech therapists are clumped together, just kind of called rehabilitation therapists a lot of times. And physical therapy is probably the most well-known. People have a pretty good understanding of what a physical therapist does, but maybe not so much as far as how they can help someone with dementia. So a physical therapist is someone who is like an expert in movement, mobility. And so they have the ability to assess and treat any issues in strength, in coordination of body movements in general. A big emphasis is usually put on ambulation or like getting around so that whether that be walking or someone propelling a wheelchair, but they also really help with prevention as well. And I think that's a big area that can be helpful for individuals with dementia is preventing falls by treating problems with balance or that strength or coordination that might result in a fall. And so they also can help with pain management whether that be chronic pain, like someone who's always had back problems or arthritis, or maybe even acute pain or something that has happened recently because of an injury, like a hip fracture. So they can help manage pain and provide exercises and stretching and things like that that can really help. 
they also just can help with determining when an assistive device is needed. So when someone needs to be transitioned to a walker or a cane or a rollator or a wheelchair, it's extremely important that if we think that someone in our life with dementia or not is having a difficult time getting around, that we involve a physical therapist and an occupational therapist can help with this too, but that we get an involvement with a therapist so that we can give them the right kind of device. Because sometimes we might just say, oh, okay, well, it looks like dad could use a cane, but perhaps using a cane is not the right choice for him. And that could actually be a increased fall risk than actually helping them get around. So physical therapists are movement experts and they diagnose and treat people with injuries, disabilities, or other health conditions, including dementia. One overlap area that PTs and occupational therapists have, an occupational therapist is someone who really helps with occupations. So not in the sense of jobs, not like getting someone back to work, which it could look like that, but occupations in the sense of the things that we do every day. We call these activities of daily living. And so that could be things like showering, toileting, dressing, grooming, walking the dog, breaking leaves, whatever it might be. So those functional movements, OTs really help with. So the area that PTs and OTs really overlap is those functional movements, including things like transfers, which would be from someone going from one surface to another. So someone going from a wheelchair to a shower bench or from a recliner to a wheelchair or from bed to a wheelchair. So they both do transfers. They also do safety assessments. So they can actually come into a home and make modifications and recommendations for things that could be changed so that the person who is having any kind of difficulty can get around safer. So showing you where to install grab bars or you should get a shower bench because that's really going to help them get in and out of the shower better. So that's a really area of um, overlap between the two. But an occupational therapist also really helps with instrumental activities of daily living. We call those IADLs. And those are more complex thinking tasks. So things like budgeting or managing medications or cooking. So things that involve actual physical movement, but also a lot of thinking and processing. OTs are also helps assess and treat in the areas of strength and coordination, range of motion for muscles. There are some OTs that are hand specialists. So a lot of times as people get older, they might have like rheumatoid arthritis, or maybe if they've had a stroke in the past and they have contractures of their hands, you can definitely see an OT for any kind of management of those kind of things. They also are great in helping with positioning. So even people in the very latest stages of dementia who are bed bound, an OT can come in and provide recommendations and equipment to make them more comfortable not just more comfortable, but safer, you know, decreased risk of getting bed sores or pressure ulcers. And OTs also, some are driving specialists. So driving is a big problem with individuals with dementia. And so there is a way that you can go online and search for a driving specialist in your area that's an OT. And I always recommend caregivers do this, especially when maybe we think that someone shouldn't be driving, but they are insistent that they should. You can send them to these kind of places. They will do a full assessment. Some of them have virtual driving situations, and sometimes they jump in the car with them 
And they can be the ones, you know, they can be the bad guys to say, listen, we assessed and it is not safe for this person to drive. So Uh that's a really, yeah, that's a really unique thing. Yeah. Taking, taking the the burden off of the family to make the decision and using the, the professional can be so helpful sometimes. Absolutely. We do not mind at all medical professionals to be the bad guys, to be the ones to say, Hey, you want us to be the bearer of bad news about something that they can or can't do. We are willing to do that because we can go to bed at the end of the day and sleep fine. We don't have to live in the same house as them. So we, we can make those kind of decisions. And then a speech language pathologist, I'm a little biased because I am (laughs) one, but I think we're pretty great. So our spiel is typically, okay, we help people in three different areas, communication, swallowing, and cognition. So when it comes to communication, this is not just talking, but of course involves that, but communication as far as speech and language. So speech would be the way that we say things, how it comes out. So voice quality, fluency. So if there's any stuttering, for example, and then a lot of times we think about this with children, but articulation, having good pronunciation of words. I will say speech language pathologists and speech therapists interchangeably, it means the same thing. So thanks for clarifying out there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that's kind of the speech side. And so individuals with Parkinson's have a lot of changes in their voice. That's really relevant for this population. But then there's also language, which is understanding, which is comprehension of language. So whether that's written language where we're reading it or we're hearing someone else say words auditorily that's auditory comprehension. And then also communication with body language, which is extremely important for people with dementia because they lose the ability to verbalize what they need, what they want to say. So a lot of times we might call these behaviors, but it's when somebody is being resistant, pushing you away, screaming, no, that's a form of communication. And we need to be able to understand that. Just to clarify that for folks, I think I say that a lot, that all Mm -hmm. behavior is communication, whether it's positive or negative behavior or construed as positive or negative behavior, but it is all communication. And I, I just want to highlight that. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And like, we have to, like you said, whether it's construed as positive or negative, I mean, really behaviors are just pretty neutral. It's the consequences that are positive or negative. So even just us sitting here talking, like while I'm talking, you're nodding your head and smiling. That's, we call that a behavior, but it's a positive one because you're showing that you're listening and that you're understanding, right? And there have been times I've given trainings where the body language is different, right? They got their head in their hands. They're like half asleep. They're looking at their phones. That's a behavior. That's communicating to me that they could care less about what I'm saying. So when we think about individuals with dementia and how they act, it's a form of communication. And we, Some are more convenient than others and more effective than others, but it is that it's just, it's communication. And so as SLPs being experts in communication, that's very much our realm and a very relevant part of dementia care. So then the second thing we do is swallowing. And so this kind of, this is not even in our name, right? Speech language pathology, but swallowing is a huge part of our job, especially in the elderly population. So that is any difficulty with whether it be getting food to the lips, once it passes the lips, it's kind of to clarify, there is a overlap with OTN SLPs, just like there was for OTN PTs. So the overlap between OTN speech is in self-feeding a lot of times and also cognition, which we can talk about in a second. 
But OTs typically help get the food from the plate to the mouth. And as soon as it passes through the lips, then it's a speech therapist role to make sure that they are able to manipulate the food in their mouth to chew it and then to swallow it successfully and it get where it's supposed to go. So a lot of times individuals with dementia will have difficulty swallowing. This is called dysphagia. And so we assess and treat all areas of dysphagia. And sometimes that might look like modifying someone's diet, making their drinks thicker or making their food softer. But a lot of times it's also just training staff or caregivers and how to present the food, how to assist them in attending to the task of eating. So that's swallowing. And then cognition, of course, huge problem for people with dementia. Cognition is just thinking skills. So this is not just memory, although that is the most commonly associated symptom of dementia. Individuals with dementia, especially different types of dementia, will have problems in a lot of other areas of thinking, like problem solving and inhibition of impulsive behaviors and planning and organizing thoughts and attending, attention and focusing on things. And so that is an overlap between speech and OT. We can work together a lot on that. Usually speech, we say like speech therapy is more cognition as it relates to communication. And with occupational therapy, it's cognition as it relates to function. But like I said, there's a big overlap there. So those are the three types of therapy, what we do and how we can help individuals with dementia. And it's, we're not utilized enough, as you know. Uh, Yes, yes. And this is so important. This is why I'm really glad that you're coming on because one of the things that I really try to do is help families advocate for themselves. And Mm -hmm. So often people that are caregivers, you know, we're not trained. We don't have the mentors. We have a lot of people just haven't been in this position before. And so you don't know what you don't know. And there's these kind of underlying rules and in the medical field of you have to follow these steps or you have to um, do what the doctor says. And I'm such a fan of empowering and educating folks to know what questions to ask and and where they can advocate. And this is a huge area, a huge area because, and I'm just going to jump right to a, a deeper topic, which is often people will go to their doctor when they're having a challenge or a problem with their loved one's behavior. And a doctor Many doctors, uh, not all, are trained to prescribe medication. And so medication can often be the first step in the attempt to change a behavior, a challenging behavior that might be occurring. And it's so important to address all the other ways to really get curious and look at the different interventions and approaches. And what I'm hearing you say, based on your description, and also because I follow you, (laughs) mm-hmm. is that there are so many other creative ways to approach somebody that might be having those challenges before you jump to prescribing a medication that might have some, that often has, you know, serious side effects. Yeah. And just the practical implication of it too, though, because like, you go, a lot of times I'll hear caregivers, well, I went to the doctor and I told him I was having a really hard time showering mom. And of course, yeah, we go to the doctors and they know everything and they tell us everything to do. But reality is when is the last time, if ever someone, a doctor has showered someone with dementia, 
right? Unless they've had a personal experience or some kind of rotation back in med school, how often is that an experience that they have? So what even insight do they have into what could even be the issue? They might think, well, okay, like the person is combative. So yes, let's do a sedative so that they can not be as, as wild. But a therapist ask me, when's the last time I showered someone with dementia, especially when I was working in skilled nursing um, yesterday, right? Multiple like times a day. Yes. I've given hundreds of showers to people with dementia and I'm a speech therapist. Like OTs do showers on the regular. And so when someone has difficulty showering, for example, toileting, whatever, dressing someone with dementia, you can go to a doctor and ask a question, but they're not going to know what it looks like when the person is soapy and wet and their fists are flying. And what do you do in those moments? And we not only have the education and backgrounds in understanding the neurological situation going on there, but also the experience to know I've done this before and here's what I've done in these situations and let's try it with your mom. So I think that is a big thing is that we have so much hands-on experience in this gets down to like nitty gritty details, but as far as therapists go, when we're working with someone, anyone, whether they have dementia or not, we're spending 30 minutes to an hour with them one-on-one. And who has time like that? No nurse aide has that much time. No nurse has that much time. And so we are the medical professionals that have the time to, and the ability to build insurance for that time to work with people with dementia and figure out what some solutions might be. So, oh my gosh. So here's another question. I'm curious about accessing speech language pathologists. And so there's two, there's kind of two questions here. How how do you do that practically? Do you need a referral? Are SLPs able to go into people's homes, like with a home health referral, or are they going into the office? And then the second side of the question is, which I'm sure many of our listeners would agree. What if there's resistance? You know, what if the person with the with memory impairment or with dementia is reluctant or resistant to working with someone? Yeah. So I can answer that question about access. I'll answer it for speech OT and PT because it's the same process. So if you are listening to this and you think, oh my gosh, I would, I think mom could really use an OT or a PT or speech therapist. Number one, it's not up to you to decide which role or which professional is the right one. Like I said, there's overlap for all of us. You can ask for us all and we can do evaluations and determine which is most appropriate. So don't feel like as a caregiver, you have to study up on our scopes of practice and figure out which one is going to be a good fit. We'll do that. So there's going to be two main scenarios. Overall, it requires in the United States, at least, and in most states, there is a requirement that there is a doctor order for therapy. So if you want a therapist to work with someone, the first step is to go to the primary care physician. So you're going to just ask, hey, I've heard about speech, occupational, physical therapy. I would really love them to come in to see if there's anything they can do for mom to help. So that's going to be the first step. But then from there, there's kind of two scenarios. Let's say someone is living at home. And so you are caring for them at home under your roof or under their own roof, whatever. So they're at home. Then they are going to qualify for, or their options will be home health or outpatient therapy. 
And so outpatient therapy is what has it sounds. It's going to a clinic, going to a building and getting therapy inside of a building somewhere in your community. So that, of course, requires the person with dementia to be able to get into a car, to travel there, to participate. And so not everyone has that level of ability. The other option is home health. So if someone is deemed homebound, they need to be considered to have a lot of effort to get them out. So that could be physical. So saying that they are require a wheelchair or they're very slow or they can't walk very far. And so because of those reasons, they are deemed homebound, but this could also be cognitive. So it is a requires a taxing effort to get them out of the home because of cognitive reasons. That might be that they're at a high risk of wandering off or of acting inappropriately. So they require supervision when they are out. Also to be deemed homebound, you have to only be able to get out of the house for or doctor's appointments, special occasions, and like haircut appointments or mm-hmm. religious services. So if they're getting out and about and like hanging out with all their friends and going playing bridge with everybody and they're out a lot, they're not going to be able to be deemed homebound and they won't qualify for home health. But out. yeah. So, but if they go out to get their haircut or they go to, you know, your daughter's house for a birthday party just once a month or whatever then they would likely be able to be deemed homebound. So as long as they can be deemed homebound and we can document a change in status recently, that could be as simple as I was able to give mom a shower really easily last month and this month it's harder. That's a change in status. And so it doesn't have to be like a fall or an illness or an injury. Those will automatically obviously qualify someone. But even if it's just Hey, mom was talking really easy, like really fluently before. And now I can barely understand what she's saying that are coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So any, any of those kind of changes that can qualify you for home health services. And so once again, you ask the doctor, I would like home health. They will contact a home health agency. You can choose one if you have a preference or they can pick for you. And then those people will come to your house, do an assessment and then determine what benefit what would benefit your loved one yes okay and so then the other uh, the other situation is if someone lives in like a skilled nursing facility or an assisted living they also can receive therapy services the majority of facilities like that in the united states have therapists either on site or contracted from the community so in that case you would just ask the nurse to like hey i would love to get therapy involved with dad and they can facilitate that. But as you said, we need to be advocates for our loved ones. We need to follow up, make phone calls, make sure those orders are being faxed, that they're being received. Don't just assume that because you mentioned it, it's going to happen. So that's how we get therapy involved. And if we see any resistance, especially if someone has dementia, This falls more on the therapist. And I would really recommend having a conversation with the therapist about how you recommend they approach your loved one. So some people, I can come in, busting through the door. Hi, I'm Adri. I'm a speech therapist. I'm here to help you with your speech, your swallowing, and your cognition. And it's well-received. They're motivated. They want to participate. But other people, I come in and I say, hi, I'm Adria. I just thought I'd come meet you. I haven't met you yet. What's your name? And I never tell them I'm a speech therapist. So the family knows they're getting therapy. They are agreeing. They have approved it. But to the person with dementia, I don't have to mention what I'm doing, right? A physical therapist can come in and be like, 
hey, I'd love to show you. We got some new paintings on the wall. Come take a walk with me. Let's go. And they, we get done what we need to get done, but we do it in a way that's going to make them more agreeable. So if we see, or if we, if we see resistance, or if we expect resistance from our loved ones with therapy, I would try to get, pull them aside day one and say, Hey, mom denies that she has any problems with her memory. Please don't mention that that's why you're here. Do whatever you have to do, but just know that she's really sensitive to that. And if you bring it up, she's going to shut you down. And that's a really good way that caregivers can kind of stand in the gap. Love that. I love that. And another thing that I think of too is if if you as a family member know, have have an idea of what has worked and what hasn't worked. Like there are a few families out there who you you kind of alluded to that example of mom is super sensitive to the idea of dementia, the just the word or the name because her mom had it or whatever. And she so just don't mention that word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or if you as a family member know that, oh my gosh, my dad, I used this example before. If my father had dementia, a type of dementia, I would be telling people, when you go meet him, ask him about his dog training. He, he was a dog trainer for years and he could go on and on talking about dog breeds and dog behavior and this dog he had and that dog. So any little golden nuggets you can give the therapist that might be a helpful approach can be really helpful. too. That's perfect. Yes, exactly. Love that. So I wonder if you could share some stories. And again, I know just from from following you, Adria, that you have hundreds and hundreds of stories and examples that you could probably share. What I think would be helpful in this episode to talk about is some success stories of working with a speech language pathologist and not only success stories, but but the types of scenarios, you know, because it's such a wide range. When we're talking about communication and cognition, mm. <laughs> I'm like, that's kind of everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, do you have some, like, just kind of a range of examples that you might just to feed some ideas to, to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell you a story about Betty. And so Betty was living in a memory care facility. And she was one of the very first people that I, I worked with that when I started this specific position and she was wreaking havoc on the environment, on everyone around her. So her pattern was to use her walker kind of as a weapon. So she would run it into people and she would, anytime someone would kind of get around her, she would kind of push it towards them. And her language was very limited. So she was almost like a parrot in that she had what was called echolalia, where she would repeat things that she heard. So she didn't have a lot of speech that was of her own. It was just things that she would hear. And so there were other residents who kind of picked up on this. And so when she would be repeating something, they would say, shut up. And so then she would go, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Then they would start telling her things to repeat that were just mean, like you have a big butt. And she would be like, you have a big butt, you have a big butt. And they, it just, it got really, it got really tough for everybody because obviously she was upsetting other residents and they were playing with her in a way just wasn't appropriate. And another issue was she would be able to get up and walk around 
whenever she wanted to, but if she was sitting on the couch and she did not want to get up, it took two people to kind of come on either side of her and lift her out of the couch or whatever surface. And then getting her to walk in the direction you wanted to was kind of like corralling a wild animal. It was like blocking off directions they didn't want her to go. And it just took a really long time to get her to go to the bathroom because she could toilet, but she wouldn't initiate it on her own. So we had to assist her. So I came in seeing the, these issues and she was at a high risk for having to leave our facility because it was an assisted living. And the criteria was that someone had to be an assist of one person. And she was technically looking like an assist of two people. And of course, she was riling up a lot of people. She was at, at risk of causing other people to fall when she would do that with her walker. And so, and you're you're speaking a little to the dignity issue too of being absolutely that other people are recognizing that she and playing with her mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah, right, right. And so it was a challenge, but this is where like this is my favorite thing. I love working with the most challenging cases. If I get a referral, it's like a sweet little old lady who's just a little bit confused. I'm like, eh, it's <laughs> kind of boring. I, I like I like the wild ones. Real so, <laughs> yes. As a speech therapist, I look at this situation and I'm just assessing everything. Okay, so how can we, we know she has the ability to walk. How can we get her to initiate doing it when we need her to? How do we get her to repeat things that are not so negative? And so I started working with her and I quickly realized that she had the ability to read still. So there would be a TV on the screen and every time it was time for a meal, a thing would pop up and it would say lunchtime or breakfast or if whenever an activity would happen, it would say bingo. And she would look up at it and she would just repeat it. Bingo, 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 bingo over and over again. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to see, try something. And so I just, I took a regular piece of printer paper and I wrote on it my name is Betty. And I showed it to her and she's like, my name is Betty. My name is Betty. My name is Betty. So I was like, okay, we can use this. We can use this ability for her to read somehow. I just didn't know how much her comprehension was of what she was saying. And so I worked with the occupational therapist and I was like, let's like, just try this. So I write on a piece of paper, let's go to the bathroom. And I show it to her and she says, let's go to the bathroom. Let's go to the bathroom. And she begins to stand up on her own. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I just have a big stack of paper and a Sharpie and I'm just scribbling writing like over and over again, her attention and her memory was very short. So we'd walk a few steps and then she'd stop and kind of look around. And then I'd show her again, let's go to the bathroom. Let's go to the bathroom. Let's go to the bathroom. And she would continue. We get her all the way into the bathroom and I'm writing every step. Let's sit on the toilet. Let's pull up our pants. And so every step of the way, giving her these, these visual written cues allows her to be so much more independent. I mean, we're not having to do much of anything. Yeah. She just needed to know what was next. And so once this happens, she fully clothed again. She walks out of her bathroom into her like bedroom area. And the OT and I are just standing there like, oh my gosh. Okay. Like so excited. Yeah. And we're talking about it and like how coming up with all these ideas that we can utilize this and train the staff with this. And before we know it, we go back into the bedroom area and she is in bed covers over her. And we are like five minutes from lunch and we were like, Oh no, like the staff are going to kill us. Like we got her in bed. She needs to come out and eat. And so I wrote, let's go on a, on a card and showed it to her. 
she threw those covers back, said, let's go, let's go. And she jumped right out of bed. And it was just like moments like that. Yeah. I'm imagining uh, the staff coming in, uh, what would have happened, right? Staff come in, they're shaking her awake. She's not knowing what they're wanting to do. They're trying to get her out of bed. She's resisting. Then it takes two people. Like I'm painting this picture uh, in my mind of, yes, the path of least resistance and the path of dignity and the path of honoring the abilities that she still has. Absolutely. Because her comprehension for verbal language was not good. If I said, let's go, let's go. Just, it's not the same as her reading it. There was some part of her brain that was damaged that required written cues. So the way we use this and how it ended up developing is I just took index cards and we printed different phrases and laminated them, put them on a key ring and put a stretchy cord and attached it to her walker. And there were things like, I always do it in first person. So I will take my medicine. I will eat lunch. I will go to the bathroom. I will change my clothes, those kind of things. And then it also developed into, I was noticing she would sit on the couch with her walker in front of her. She had a basket that you could see through and she would just read the phrase that was facing her. So she would be like, I take my medicine. I'll take my medicine, you know, over and over again and random times. So then I made her a separate one with social words. And so we wrote, have a great day. You're beautiful. I'm really happy. You know, all these like phrases that were more conducive for social situations and gave her more dignity. And she would be able to compliment other people rather than saying, you have a big butt, you have a big butt because they're playing with her. Right. And so just training the staff and like flipping those pages every once in a while, finding the one that she needs to know what to do next. It was that simple. And so that intervention not only changed dignity issues, allowed her to be more independent. She no longer was at risk of having to move to another facility. She was able to age in place. She ended up passing about six months later, but she lived there in her apartment until the day she died. And that's that's the goal. Anywhere that someone is, we want them to age and we want them to die there. And I know that sounds crazy, but like we want as little transition as possible for them to stay with their friends, to stay with their caregivers that they know. And it's just, it's better for the family and for the residents. You're bringing up such a good point. And that is such a a good story from beginning to end. And, And this last point that you're making about aging in place, this is something we see so much is that the going gets tough, you know, with a, with a resident because their disease is progressing or certain challenges are popping up. And the facility is at their wits end. They, like you said before, they, the, the nurses aides and nurses don't always have time to sit mm-hmm. and figure this stuff out and they don't have the training always either. And so the importance of, again, advocating for your loved one, hopefully choosing as best as we can. I mean, there's no judgment because facilities you can choose the the quote best place, and then there's a shift, you know, a staff change or a leadership change, or like I said, your 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 loved one declines, and then they're they are not equipped to fully work with that. But utilizing therapies to come in and work with the team and help educate them, or or work with you and help educate you, so that then you can advocate. I think it's just really important to preserve that placement of, you know, the place where they live. Yeah. That's the hardest thing about dementia is whether they're at home or they're at a facility, 
you think you've got, like, as soon as you think that you've, you have them figured out and you know exactly what kind of assistance and support they need, something changes, right? They progress or caregivers change and problems continue to arise. And so that's really where therapists can kind of stand in the gap. And we are experts in assessing current function. So we are able, the assessments that I do, I will see a resident over the course of two or three years that I was working at the last place. There are several people who I worked with maybe five or six times. And every time I'm doing cognitive assessments and I'm able to put a number to where they are all the way through. And it's really helpful for families because it makes it less subjective and it kind of gives proof to the fact that like, oh, what I am seeing like there is some, something behind that, you know? Yeah. What other types of referrals do you tend to get just in general? I get a lot of referrals for swallowing issues, weight loss, people just not wanting to eat at all. And that is a natural part of the progression of dementia. There's not, there isn't always like a fix to that, but once again, a lot of times it's, the approach. It's how we present things to them that can really help. I get referrals for just confusion, like difficulty following directions. That's usually what we see most is like before they were able to do it more independently. And now they're needing more assistance. Once again, that's part of the progression. It's to be expected, but it's still a good reason for referral. And then I think more than that is I just, I don't get a lot of true speech referrals, which is kind of ironic because that's my title as a speech therapist is like someone's voice or anything like that. That's usually just not an issue in skilled nursing facilities. So mostly swallowing and then like just confusion. Confusion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I, I love that we're having this episode because even uh, I used to work in hospital setting and skilled nursing settings and memory care and and I will admit, when you think of a, a speech language pathologist referral, I'm thinking about swallowing issues. It, mm-hmm. I wasn't even fully aware of the opportunities that really your training have to offer folks with these different approaches to, to these challenges. So super excited to, to be sharing. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I wanted to say, too, is like, not all you know, not all nurses are the same, not all aides are the same, right? And it's certainly true that not all therapists are the same. So there are times where people will say, oh, mom had a physical therapist in the past and it was terrible. They didn't do anything. So if you have a not so good experience uh, with a therapist, you can ask for another one. Now, not in, in not every community are there a lot of options. I understand that. But it really does depend on the therapist themselves and what they feel specialized in and what they feel confident in. And I hope, uh, well, I, I know that what I'm doing is making a difference, at least in speech therapy. I, I hear from speech therapists all the time that are like, I had no idea that our role was so important with dementia. Like I've implemented some of the things that you've recommended on Instagram and stuff and it's working. And I'm doing consultations with SLPs to make them better for this population because I can be a great speech therapist, but I'm only in one place at a time. We need more speech therapists out there and therapists in general, OTs and PTs as well, to really take up a passion for for this population because caregivers need us. 
And if we aren't using our education and experience in neurology and function and all of these assessments, all of this stuff that we do, if we're not using our skills and we're saying, oh, well, they're not appropriate for therapy because they're not going to get better, then essentially what we're saying is these caregivers, whether they be personal caregivers at home or professional caregivers like AIDS, we're essentially saying, well, you, you can figure it out. And they can't like there's, they don't know what they don't know. Like you said, at the very beginning of this, and we need to be so much more involved. We need to be really driving the care for people with dementia because we have so much information that's valuable and so many skills. And it takes a team, you know, I mean, there is no one person that knows it all or can do it all. Even, even if there was a magical person that knew it all, that had all the skills, you still can't do it all on your own. And so I know that I've talked in the past, I happen to have a contract with the state as a challenging behavior consultant. And so I get called into facilities to assess behavior. And I always say a hundred percent of the time, the bulk of the value that I bring is supporting the caregiver. Mm-hmm. You know, even if I don't have the answer, even if I don't come in with a magic wand and fix things, it's just being there to hear, to be curious, you know, to bring that sense of curiosity and brainstorm together. And often just by holding the space to do that, the caregiver figures it out or, yes. you know, together we figure it out. And so I can really, I, I appreciate you saying that so much that that it's not fair and it's not reasonable to think that the primary caregiver should know how to handle something or figure it out on their own. So, yeah. Adria, this has been so fun and I, I so appreciate you taking the time to come and and talk with our folks and please tell us, please share with everyone how they can follow you, find you and follow you. So yeah, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Be Like Care. You can find my website at BeLikeCare.com. I do consultations with speech therapists and with caregivers. So we can just Zoom for an hour and problem solve any kind of issues that you're experiencing. And in September, I will be putting out a showering course. So one of the biggest issues from caregivers is that, you know, it's really hard. I can't get my loved ones a shower. And so I've created a ton of content that will help you be able to have a successful shower. So that is going to be coming up. And yeah, that's any, anything else in the future will be on my Instagram. So if you follow me there or TikTok or Facebook, you'll be able to see what What I've got going on. Going on. I love that. Oh my gosh. I'm really excited about your showering course too. Um, that might be something I get my team to, to do because again, I'm, I'm speaking to all the caregivers out there, whether you're a family member or a professional, you know, we're doing this quote work. We're, we're, we're providing the service to our loved ones and our clients and our residents because something brought us there. You know, we have heart to do it and we want to be successful. It's going to help everybody. And so having these tools like the showering course or just following you on Instagram, it's really inspiring and can be really helpful. So thank you so much for what you do, Adria. It's needed in the world. It's an honor to be able to help caregivers. It's, it's a great job to have. Great.
All right, folks. Well, I will make sure that I leave these links in the show notes. And I encourage you to follow Adria, Be Light Care on favorite social media platforms. And we will see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have comments or would like to send us a message, you can send it to hello at lifeonrepeatpodcast.com. Please also consider following us at Life on Repeat Podcast, either on Instagram or Facebook. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.